Please bow your heads and we will turn our hearts to the Lord now. Jesus, your name is high and lifted up. You are not only our Savior, our Redeemer, you are King of Kings, Lord of Lords. We give you praise and thanks this morning for all that you are and all that you have done for us. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would minister to us this morning. We pray that you would expand our faith, deepen our faith. Give us a clearer vision this morning of your glory and your grace and enable us by your spirit to cling to those truths in faith. We pray that you would encourage us, strengthen us, lift up weary heads and weary hearts this morning. Lord, for those who bring discouragement and trials in with them today, I pray that your comfort and your grace would abound to them. And we ask, Lord, that you would equip us Fill us with all the spiritual resources we lack so that we might serve you, so that we might faithfully uh, do the things that you've called us to do and do them effectively. We pray now, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word, and we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and for the sake of his glory. Amen. The whole Bible is ultimately about Jesus. This doesn't mean that every verse we read is literally talking about Jesus directly. But the whole story of Scripture itself leads us to one place, and that is to the Christ, to the Son of God who became flesh, who was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, who died for sin and rose again, ascended to heaven, and is seated right now at the right hand of the Father. This whole story, this whole book is ultimately all about him. He is the climax of the narrative. He is the the fullness of God's self-revelation. And this is important. It's important, not just so that we can be good students of the Bible and understand how it fits together, but this is actually good news that the Bible is all about Jesus. It's good news that it's all about him rather than being all about us. It's good news that it's primarily about what he has done rather than about what we are supposed to do. It's good news because it's entrusting Jesus that we find salvation. It's in knowing Jesus that we find satisfaction. It's in seeing Jesus that you and I experience transformation. It's in following Jesus that we find purpose. It's through union with Jesus that we come to share in the resurrection. So it's really, really important, isn't it, that we see and know and understand Jesus. You know, there's a lot of metaphors in Scripture that describe for us the person and work of Jesus Christ, and we discover many of these in Jesus' teaching about himself. For instance, just in the Gospel of John alone, we hear Jesus saying, I am the door. There's a metaphor, right? If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. There's the meaning of the metaphor. In John 10, 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. There's the metaphor. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There's the meaning of the metaphor. John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In John 15, 5, he says, I am the vine. You are the branches. There's the metaphor. Here's the meaning. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So all these and many, many others, they help us to understand what Jesus is like. And and what it is that he does for us in his ministry. But Jesus' teaching is not the only place where we are helped to understand 
exactly who Jesus is and what Jesus does. As the biblical storyline unfolds, and as all these prophecies in the Old Testament begin to sort of accumulate, we discover that there are three offices that Christ fulfills, three specific functions that Jesus performs that hold great significance in the kingdom of God, great significance for the people of God. And those three offices are prophet, priest, and king. Three different offices in God's kingdom. And understanding these offices are crucial for us. And again, not just to be good students of the word, but they are crucial to a life of faith and a life of worship as followers of Jesus. Now, we all know that a simple view of Jesus will save. Even a small child can understand that Jesus is God made flesh who died for our sins and rose again. If you believe that, you have eternal Life. If you trust in that, you have salvation. A simple view of Jesus will save, but we want to go further up and further in, as it were, to expand our view of Christ until our understanding of Jesus reaches biblical proportions. We want to know more of him. We want to see the fullness of all that he is and all that he has done so that our simple faith in the gospel grows to embrace the fullness of all that God has done for us in him. So I want to talk a little bit this morning about what it means that Christ is prophet, priest, and king. And the reason we're doing that this week, even though we've been going through Genesis, is because back in Genesis 14, we met an interesting man, a man named Melchizedek. If you were here last week, you remember that. This mysterious man appears suddenly on the scene, and then he vanishes just as quickly. He's really not mentioned again in the rest of the story of Genesis. We don't know anything else about his reign We don't know anything about his ancestry. We don't have his genealogy. We don't know anything about his descendants. We don't know anything about his death. But this name, Melchizedek, is brought up later in the biblical story. We see it in the book of Psalms, and we see it extensively talked about in the book of Hebrews. In the New Testament, Melchizedek and Jesus are explicitly connected for us. Listen to what Hebrews 6.19 says. The author of Hebrews says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you guys get the the weekly email we send out and you read through those several chapters in Hebrews, it can be kind of confusing. We see all this talk about Melchizedek connecting him to Jesus. And what I want to talk about this morning is what does it mean that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek? And why is that connection so important? Not just for the original audience of Hebrews, but for us today. I want to consider this morning that connection between this mysterious prototype in Genesis and the messianic fulfillment that we find in Jesus. So we're going to look at basically three key passages. The first is Genesis 14. Number one, in Genesis 14, we discover first and foremost a messianic model. The messianic model that we find in Melchizedek. You remember the story from last week. Abraham, who's living in the land of Canaan, hears that his nephew Lot has been captured. He's been taken captive as a slave, as a prize of war, by this invading coalition of foreign kings. And so Abram hears about it, and he goes to rescue his nephew. He saddles up, gets his servants and a few allies, and they go. And God grants him an incredible victory, an incredible victory over a much superior 
uh, military opponent. And as Abram returns to Canaan, he comes not only with Lot in tow, but he actually takes all of the spoils, all the plunder that these invaders had taken from the cities of the valley, places like Sodom and Gomorrah. So as he's returning, he's greeted by two kings, the king of Sodom, who wants some of his stuff back, but secondly, the king of Salem, whose name is Melchizedek. We see this in Genesis 14, verse 18. It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him, gave Melchizedek, a tenth of everything, a tenth of those spoils. <clears throat> In Melchizedek, we have a unique union of two roles. Melchizedek, we are told, is both priest of the Most High God and he is king, king of Salem. And this picture of a priest who is also a king is key to understanding the person and work of Jesus Christ, God's Messiah. Melchizedek is a messianic model. He's a prototype. He's a model of the Messiah, first of all, in his kingship. We see that Melchizedek is both king of righteousness and king of peace. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. And the city that he ruled over, Salem, ancient Jerusalem, Salem is from that same root word as shalom. He is the king of peace, king of righteousness and king of peace. And righteousness and peace are the two things that God's people desperately needed. The two things that God's people were waiting on. The Messiah to come would one day rule and reign in righteousness, unlike the unrighteous kings, unlike the kings who oppressed them, unlike the kings who, even with good intentions, like David, stumbled and fell. They needed a righteous king who would uphold justice, who would destroy wickedness. And the result of this righteous reign would be shalom. It would be peace. You can't have peace where there is wickedness and injustice. <clears throat> We see this in our society today. When there's corruption, there is oppression. When there is oppression, there is suffering. There is no peace unless there is a righteous ruler. You can't have peace when there's wickedness and injustice. But when righteousness reigns, when there is a righteous ruler who upholds justice, peace is inevitable and peace is enjoyed by all who are under that good reign of the righteous king. Melchizedek is a model of the Messiah, first of all, in his kingship. He is king of righteousness, king of peace, pointing forward one day to Jesus. But he's, secondly, a model of the Messiah in his priesthood. In his priesthood. Though Melchizedek was not an Israelite, he was technically a Jebusite, he serves and worships, Moses tells us, God most high. Not Baal, not the Ashtaroth, not Dagon, the God of the Philistines, none of these foreign gods. He serves and worships God most high. And his priesthood is unique. It's unique because he's not like the other priests that we meet in the Old Testament. The rest of the priests that we're familiar with come from the tribe of Levi, part of the nation Israel. But at this time, I mean, think about it. The nation Israel doesn't even exist yet. Abram has not yet fathered Isaac. Isaac has not yet fathered Jacob, whose name would be changed to Israel, who would have 12 sons, who would be the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. The Levites don't even exist yet. So this priest is unique in that he predates the Levitical priesthood. 
Now, the author of Hebrews will later pick up on this as an important interpretive key. Hang on to this. Just tuck it away in your mind that there is a priesthood that predates the Levitical priesthood, a king priest, a royal priest who is not of the tribe of Levi. That will become very, very important to the argument of the author of Hebrews. But we see here a model for the Messiah in Genesis 14, one who is a king, king of righteousness, king of peace, and one who is a priest, one who serves and represents and worships God Most High and blesses the people of God as a mediator. In God's providence, in God's wisdom, this meeting in Genesis 14, even though we don't know a lot about it other than just a few things that are said here, this meeting was ordained by God to happen and to be recorded in Scripture as a prototype so that there would be something later that they could point back and say, hey, this is like that to help them understand what it is that Jesus had come to do. Melchizedek sets a precedent for Christ's royal priesthood, which becomes very, very important later. But I want to go to another passage. Turn to Psalm 110 with me this morning. Psalm 110. Not only do we have a messianic model in Genesis chapter 14, but in Psalm 110 we find a messianic hope. A messianic hope for one who would come as God's Messiah. Just want to read the first half of this psalm for us this morning, starting in verse 1. This is a psalm of David, and he writes, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 is clearly a messianic psalm. It's a a coronation hymn, a song to be sung as the king was being established and taking his seat on the throne. And it's a hymn that points forward, not just to David's son, or not even to his grandson, but to his later descendant, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one on whom rested all the hopes of ancient Israel, the one in whom all the promises of God would one day come to fulfillment. Here in this psalm, we find a promise that God would establish the glorious reign of David's descendant and designate him as an eternal priest. He will be a king. He will be David's Lord. He will be receiving a scepter from the hand of God. He will be ruling not only over God's people, but also over his enemies. He will be royal and be a king, but he will also be a priest. A priest forever. Not by birth, not because he's born from the tribe of Levi, but according to the word of God. In verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. It's the designation of God that bestows priesthood on this king. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So here we see these two offices, king and priest, united in one person, just like it was before in Melchizedek. Now the expectation of the Messiah fulfilling both these roles, it's not limited to Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, we see this coming together, but we find it throughout the prophets as well. Just listen to Jeremiah 23.5. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, 
This is talking about the Messiah, the descendant of David. Branch here is like family tree. You know, there's roots, trunk, and branch. He is related to David. I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king. There's that first office of king. And deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This branch of David will be a righteous king. Listen to Zechariah 6.12. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. Talking about this Messiah once again. For he shall branch out from his place And listen to this, he shall build the temple of the Lord. Who works in the temple? Who's responsible for what goes on in the temple? Whose office is fulfilled in the temple? It's the priest. Says he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule from his throne. Here's the kingship language. And there shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be in between them both. We have here the temple and the throne, a king and a priest, and we have peace. All of this pointing forward to a future Messiah. Now let me ask you, who had in time past sat on the throne in Jerusalem as a royal priest? Melchizedek. He had sat on the throne in ancient Jerusalem as priest of God Most High, And as the king of righteousness. And we see that the Messiah to come in some way would be like him. In the sense that he would unite these two offices of priest and king. One day, the ancient Melchizedek would be eclipsed by a greater king. A greater priest. The branch, the descendant of David, the Messiah. This is the messianic hope for the people of God. This is what they were waiting for. This is what they were longing for. And this is what God had promised them. So we have the messianic model in Genesis 14. We have the messianic hope in Psalm 110 and in the prophets. But then we get to the New Testament. This is where I want to spend the bulk of our time this morning. In the New Testament, we see in Christ the messianic ministry. The Messianic ministry. And we see this especially in the book of Hebrews. You can turn there. As the New Testament unfolds, we discover that Jesus is this Messiah. Jesus is the righteous king. He is the priest. He is the branch of David. Jesus fulfills really all three of these offices of prophet, priest, and king. Peter declares in Acts chapter 3 that Jesus is the prophet who is greater than Moses, the one who was promised in Deuteronomy 18. Jesus is the messianic king, great King David's greater son. Listen to Revelation 22, 16. Jesus Christ declares of himself. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. He is prophet, he is king, and Jesus also is our great high priest, our priest, the one who mediates between God and man. Listen to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5. The author of Hebrew writes, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the person of Jesus Christ, 
we find that all three functions, all three offices of prophet, priest, and king are fulfilled. And they're fulfilled, get this, in such a way, fulfilled in such a way that brings glory to his name and salvation to his people. You know, if Jesus is not the prophet who speaks to us the word of God, if he is not the word made flesh, if Jesus is not the righteous king who defeats our enemies and rescues us from sin, if Jesus is not the high priest who mediates before between us and God, we have no salvation. We have no salvation. You know, I think it's easy for us to understand Jesus as the great prophet who speaks for God, who speaks as God, who declares what God is going to do in the future, the incarnate word. I think that's fairly simple for us to understand. He's the great prophet. I think it's also easy for us to understand Jesus is king. Jesus is the royal victor. He's the one who was paraded into Jerusalem on a donkey. Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God, people sang as he came into the royal city. It's easy for us to see Christ as the king, the one who rose again and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We know that he is the one who will one day return and establish his throne and rule and reign over all creation. We get that. That's fairly simple for us, I think. But I want to focus in on that third office. What about Jesus as priest? Because I think that's the one that's maybe a little trickier for us to really understand. That's the one that's maybe harder for us to to see how that relates to our lives. Because really, we aren't all that familiar with priests, are we? I mean, most of us did not grow up in, you know, Old Testament Israel, right? There's no temple here. There's no tabernacle. We don't have priests or sacrifices. Um, Some of you may have grown up Roman Catholic, but even that's a different kind of a thing. Um, So it's kind of hard for us to understand how Jesus functions as our priest, because we aren't all that familiar with the priestly functions or their significance. But for the people who were first reading the book of Hebrews, who are the Hebrews, right, the children of Israel, the Jewish people, for them, this would have been an incredibly significant connection. To understand Jesus as their priest would have been mind-blowing. It would have been a complete radical shift in their whole paradigm, not just in their understanding, but in their life, in their practice. It would have changed everything for them to embrace Jesus as their priest, as their high priest. So we have to understand, first of all, what is the role of a priest? What's their job description? We'll consider just a few things. Among others, the job of the priest was to offer sacrifices, sacrifices of atonement for sin. The priest would take the animal, whether it was a bull or a goat or or even something smaller like a dove, and they would go into either the tabernacle or later the temple, and they would sacrifice that animal as a representative of God's people and pour out the blood on the altar to symbolize making payment for the sins of the people. That's what the priest did. They offered sacrifices of atonement for sin. They not only did that, they secondly performed rituals of ceremonial cleansing, sometimes through sacrifice, sometimes through the sprinkling of the blood of the sacrifice or the sprinkling of water. They would symbolize the cleansing of the temple or the cleansing of the people or even the cleansing of a new priest who is going to serve On behalf of the people, the priests offered cleansing through their ceremonies and through their rituals. And then thirdly, the priests, in all of this, they served as representatives of the people before God. They were the ones who came before God on behalf of the people. 
and interceded, who prayed for the people, who blessed the people. And they're the ones who spoke to the people on behalf of God. If you were living in Old Testament Israel, you could not go into the temple, into, into the holy place. You could not go into the tabernacle before that. Only the priest was allowed into the holiest place in the center of the temple. And only once a year. Only the high priest, only once a year. He could go into the very presence of God and there mediate between a holy God and a sinful people. As we start to think through all that, it starts to become a little bit clearer, doesn't it? Why it's so important that Jesus is our priest. You see, these three key functions of mediating between God and the people, of performing cleansing rituals and offering sacrifices for atonement for sin, these are necessary to the Old Testament law. The whole Old Covenant system, the way they worshiped God, depended on these things happening. That's what regulated their relationship with God. It all hinged on what these priests did on their behalf. But everything that these priests did, all of it, it was all symbolic. None of it actually had the power to accomplish cleansing or to accomplish atonement or to really bring the people into the presence of God. It was all symbolic of a future salvation that was to come, a salvation that would be accomplished by Jesus. Remember, if our sin is not atoned for, if we are not made clean, if no one steps in to mediate between us and God, then we have no salvation. His wrath abides on us. We are unclean and guilty and cannot come into his holy presence. Why did Jesus have to become our priest? To bring salvation. To bring salvation. You know, it was hard for the Jewish believers to turn away from that old system. I mean, for centuries they had been doing this. This was the law that had been given through Moses. Moses was the man who met with God face to face and received the commandments written in stone. How could we turn our backs on this, on this whole system, our whole religion, and embrace Jesus as our high priest? That was a hard thing for them. It was a hard thing for them to leave all of that behind and to step out of that old covenant system into a new kind of relationship with God, to embrace Jesus as the mediator of a new covenant, their great high priest. It was hard for them to stop making sacrifices. I mean, imagine if you're someone who embraces Jesus as Messiah. You believe in him. You say, yes, he is the one. And then the day of sacrifice comes around. All your life and all of your parents' lives and all of your grandparents' lives and all of your great-great-great-great-great-grandparents' lives, you've always gone to the temple on the day of sacrifice to offer. And then this day you stay home. How hard would that have been? This is a radical change for these Jewish Believers, it was hard for them to stop doing the things they used to do and to believe that their salvation was complete, that there's no more sacrifices needed, that they're not dependent on those priests anymore. So the author of Hebrews goes to great lengths throughout the whole letter to, to show them and, and to, to prove to them that, listen, Jesus is better. Jesus is better, that his sacrifice is better than those old sacrifices, that his word is better than the law of Moses, that he is a legitimate and better high priest, not born from the tribe of Levi. He's after the order of Melchizedek. Imagine some of them saying, how can Jesus be our priest? He's not a Levite. He's, from the, he's a descendant of David, who's the tribe of Judah. That's where the connection with Melchizedek becomes so important, that Jesus is high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's our king, and he's our priest 
I wanted to show you, just run through, we're going to skip a rock across the book of Hebrews here, and just show us a few ways how Jesus is better. He's better than the Old Testament priesthood, the Old Testament system. We see, first of all, that his sacrifice is better, and it's better because it is final. His sacrifice is better. Look at Hebrews 9, starting in verse 11. Christ's sacrifice is better because it is final. Hebrews 9, 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He says, listen, Christ went in to make a sacrifice for us not of animals. He offered his own blood, and he did this once for all. And his sacrifice is far more powerful, far more powerful than anything that those other sacrifices could accomplish. Look down in verse 24 of Hebrews chapter 9. He continues his argument. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, not just into the temple in Jerusalem. He says, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He says, listen, Christ went in to offer a final sacrifice, one that doesn't have to be repeated, one that doesn't have to be followed up. It is eternal. Look in Hebrews 10, verse 11. Just skip over one page. Hebrews 10, 11 says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Once for all. He offered for all time a single sacrifice. And then you know what he did? He no longer stands continually making sacrifice. The author of Hebrews says now he has taken his seat at the right hand of God because his work is done. And now he's reigning as king. He's reigning as king. No more sacrifices. The blood of Christ that was shed on the cross was the complete and final atonement for sin. It was a real and effective sacrifice, not a symbolic one, but an effectual sacrifice. When Jesus says, it is finished, he meant it is paid in full. And everything that had been symbolized over the centuries has now become real and final and complete. The debt has been paid, and that sacrifice has been accepted by God. God demonstrated that by raising him from the dead. That's the sacrifice that all other sacrifices pointed to has been made. And so the sacrifice of Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, 
is better than the old sacrifices because it's eternal. His priesthood is better than that priesthood because it's effective. It's effective. We see that his priesthood is eternal. Not only is the sacrifice eternal, the priesthood is eternal. Look in Hebrews 7.23. We see that Jesus is a better priest. Hebrews 7.23, it says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, and here's where it becomes so important for us, consequently, because he never dies, because he continues forever, the author says he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Think about those words. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, the old priests would die then they needed a new one. But Christ lives forever, which means that his priestly ministry on our behalf of interceding for us continues forever. He is constantly making intercession. He is praying for us, pleading our case before God. You might ask, well, if the sacrifice has been made, if Jesus already paid our debt, then what is Jesus doing now as he's seated at the right hand of, the, of God? Well, Hebrews tells us he's our mediator who prays for us, intercedes for us. You know, it's so encouraging when someone comes up to you and says, hey, I'm praying for you. You guys experienced that kind of encouragement before? Even more encouraging is when someone says, I want to pray right now for you and pray with you. That ministers to us. That encourages us. How much more encouraging is it to know today that right now, Jesus, if you're a believer, is praying for you. He's praying for you by name. He's praying for you with the kind of insight and the kind of wisdom and the kind of knowledge that you don't even have of yourself. We don't even know how to pray for ourselves sometimes. God, I'm struggling and I don't even know why and I can't put my finger on it, but Jesus sees all, knows all, and he loves you and he's praying for you right now, advocating through prayer on your behalf. He's praying for your faith that you would continue to trust in him and that you would continue to believe. He's praying for your perseverance, that you would not walk away, that you would not lose hope, that you would not give up, that you would not lose heart. He's pleading your case on the basis of his own shed blood. When you sin and when you stumble, when your own conscience accuses you, when the enemy comes to condemn you, he stands before God and says, I've already paid that debt. Father, forgive him on the basis of my sacrifice. 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus is for you. He's on your team. He's, he's pleading your case before the Father. And how do we know that he will be successful in his advocacy? John continues, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. That's why God always answers the prayers of Christ on your behalf. Because his blood speaks. He has made propitiation for our sins. And the good news is that there is no end to this priestly ministry. 
There is no end to his praying for you. There is no end to the power of his sacrifice for you. It is eternal and is therefore better than what the Levitical priests could offer. It is better than what those old sacrifices accomplished. He is our high priest. He is our sacrifice. He is our mediator who prays for us and brings us into the presence of God. So what are the implications of this priesthood for you and for me? Well, first and foremost, well, we want to share three things. First of all, it's this. First, don't go back. Don't go back. This would have been especially important for those who were reading this letter to the Hebrews. Don't go back to the old ways. The author of Hebrews writes to hold fast to the confession. What does that mean? What confession is he talking about? The confession that Jesus is our high priest, that his sacrifice is the final one, and that the old things have passed away. They were no long, that we no longer live under this old covenant, that because of Jesus, we are now living in this new and better covenant. Hold fast to that confession. Hebrews 4.14 tells us this. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Since we have that, because of that, in light of that, he says, let us hold fast our confession. Don't go back to the old ways. Again, this was hard for the new Jewish believers. And the whole reason that the author of Hebrews makes the connection to Melchizedek is to prove to them that Jesus' priesthood is legitimate and that it is superior to the Levitical priesthood so that they would not go back, so that they would not walk away from this gospel they believed and go back to the old Jewish ways. They were incomplete and had been made obsolete as Jesus came. So don't go back, he tells them, to something that is inferior and cannot provide salvation. Instead, hold fast to the confession. Hold fast to the truth that Jesus alone can save, that his priesthood and his sacrifice are final and sufficient. And this is not only, get this, not only important for Old Testament Jews who are coming into this new era as Christ had died and rose again, this is important for you and I. This is important for people who are former addicts to self-righteousness. Former addicts to depending on our own works to atone for our sin. People who tend to lean on our own ability to somehow reconcile ourselves to God. Don't go back to the old ways of trying to be good enough, trying to do enough to make yourself right with God because you can't. Don't believe the lie that you can atone for your own sins by your own efforts or that God is accessible to those who try hard enough and those who make themselves holy enough, that he will receive those who can clean themselves to a sufficient degree. No, let us hold fast to our confession that Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is the one who brings us to God. Don't go back to the old way. Secondly, don't hold back. Don't hold back. Instead, draw near because Jesus has opened the way to God. I love Hebrews 10 verses 19 and 20. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Though formerly you and I could not enter into God's presence, our sin made us unfit 
and unqualified to stand before a holy God. If we would have, we would have been crushed by his righteous and holy wrath. But Jesus has changed all that. Now we can come into the presence of God. When Jesus hung on the cross, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that the the temple veil, the giant curtain that separated the holy place from those who were outside, that it ripped into from top to bottom, symbolizing that now the way of access was opened. Hebrews tells us that Jesus has opened the way for us, and he opened it this way through the curtain through his flesh, by the shedding of his, his blood. And what that means is that now you and I can draw near to God. Jesus has brought us near. And I love what Hebrews 6.20 says. Speaking of Jesus going into the presence of God, it says that Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You know, the ancient high priests, they could go in, once a year, into this holy place. But then they had to leave. They couldn't stay there. And you know what? They couldn't bring anybody else with them. But Jesus goes into the holy place as a forerunner, meaning the first one, which implies there are to be more who come in to the holy place. Jesus is standing there today, holding the curtain open and beckoning us to come in, beckoning us to come into the presence of God and to stay there, to stay there. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The, The Old Testament believers who were being told that now they could come into the presence of God, that would have terrified them. They would have never set foot in the in the holy place in the temple. They knew they would have died. But now the author of Hebrews says, listen, have confidence. Have confidence to come near. Come near to God. Don't hold back. Some of you may feel guilty. You may feel that I could never pray. I I could never be close to God. He would never love me or receive me because look at how dirty I am and look at all that I've done. The sacrifice of Christ and the priestly ministry of Christ says, come in, come close, don't hold back. Come experience intimacy with God. Come experience intimacy, relationship with Jesus Christ because it's been taken care of. This is the priestly ministry of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then lastly, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. Take heart. You know, the battle against sin is a bitter one, isn't it? All of us who are honest know our, our shortcomings. We know where we fail. We know where unbelief creeps in and we violate the law of God on a daily basis. We all know the difficulty that comes at us from the outside, persecution, discouragement, doubts that threaten to choke out our faith. But listen to this. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. So don't lose hope. His prayers for you are constant. His sacrifice on your behalf is effectual. And his priestly work is always received by the Father. I love what Romans 8, 31 says. It says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Who is to say that you are guilty, that you deserve to be punished, and that you cannot enter into his presence? Who is to condemn? Paul writes, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
The author of Hebrews says he is able to save to the uttermost all those who draw near to God through him. All those who repent of their sin, turn from their sin, and draw near to him in faith. And Hebrews says we have this as a sure and steady anchor for our soul. This is our hope. That our salvation ultimately depends not on us, but on Christ. Not on the effectiveness of our prayers, but on the effectiveness of his. Not on our faithfulness, but on his. Though your sin may feel heavy, though your conscience may burn this morning, convicting you of your sin. Though Satan may accuse you, you have an advocate. You have a sacrifice. You have a savior. So don't lose hope. He is able to save to the uttermost. Which leads me to this point. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, there is only one thing that matters. There's only one thing that matters. I'm standing here today as a dying man. I'm going to die, and all of you are going to die as well. And that means there's only one thing that matters. When the time comes for your death and you stand before God, will you be found righteous and welcomed into his presence? Or will you be condemned and sentenced to a just and eternal punishment. Listen, Jesus alone has the power to save. There is one mediator between God and men, and it is the man Christ Jesus. It is only through faith in him. It's only through drawing near to God through faith in Christ that you and I can be ready for that day when we stand before the judge at our death. If you don't know him this morning, I want to tell you that Jesus has the power to save, not just to alleviate your feelings of guilt, not just to even delay judgment, but to save you completely and fully and eternally. Will you turn from your sin and draw near to him? Everything that needs to be done to accomplish your salvation has been done. Receive this gift by faith. I hope all of us this morning understand a little bit more about all that Christ is and all that he has done in the past and all that he is doing on our behalf. Like I mentioned earlier, simple faith in Christ in the simple gospel is enough to save. Jesus died and rose again for our sins. That is enough. But I want to expand your understanding this morning of what it means for God to give us this gift of salvation, that God planned it in eternity past, that he promised it and provided for it in the Old Testament, that he sent Jesus to accomplish our salvation. And as he hung on the cross, his death paid the penalty for our sin. That at the moment of your conversion, the Holy Spirit was actively drawing you and opening your eyes. That your salvation has past and present implications and aspects to it. That even today, God is making you more like Christ and he is holding you tight in his hands and Jesus is praying for you so that you never fall away. And that one day, He will resurrect you, glorify your body, and welcome you into his presence. Our salvation has a past, a present, and a future aspect. And I want us to see all of it and understand how necessary the work of Christ is to every part of it. And I want us to see this, not just so that we know how Hebrews fits together with Psalm 110 and Genesis 14, although that's important and necessary, but we understand those things for a reason. We study this stuff for a reason, and the reason is so that we might trust him more fully. Trust him more fully so that we might worship him more passionately with reverence and awe, considering all that God has done and is doing and will do for us because of Jesus, and so that we might cling to him more confidently. When doubts arise, when we stumble, when discouragement comes, that we would cling and hold fast to our confession 
that Jesus has done it all. You know, in the book of Luke, there's an amazing story, and we'll close with this. There's an amazing story of two disciples. This is the day after Jesus had rose from the dead. They don't know it yet. And they're walking along the road to Emmaus. And as they're walking, a stranger joins them. They don't recognize him, but it's the risen Christ. And he asked them, what are you guys talking about? And they say, haven't you heard the news? And they told him what had happened to Jesus, and it says that they were sad. Their hearts were sad. And it says that Jesus opened their hearts and their minds to understand the scriptures. And it says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained everything in the scriptures concerning himself. He showed them all the connections from the Old Testament, all the prophecies, and showed them how all of them came to fulfillment in the person of Jesus, and showing them that this was necessary, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And when they finally got to their destination, they invited him to stay but he said he had to be going, and he disappeared from their sight, and instantly they realized who it was that had been with them. And you know what they said? When they realized who it was that had been walking with them, and as they realized all, how all of these things fit together through the Old Testament, they looked at each other, and they said, did our hearts not burn within us while we were on the way? My prayer for us this morning is that your hearts, that our hearts would burn within us when we see how all of this so beautifully fits together and we see how powerful it is that Christ has brought to fulfillment the promises of God in order to bring us salvation and to bring him great glory. If that doesn't excite you, if that doesn't fill your heart with joy and passion and awe and gratitude, then I want to know if you really understand who Jesus is and if you've truly experienced his grace and his mercy. May our hearts burn within us this morning, burn with the glory of Christ, with joy and awe and wonder at all that he has done for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. Thank you seems like a shallow word. We are humbled. We're blown away that you would orchestrate history. You would take on flesh and suffer in our place so that we might be saved. Lord, as we read the words of Scripture and we see your plan and your story coming together and fitting together so perfectly, we are in awe at both your sovereignty and your grace. Jesus, we are in awe this morning at all that you do. You are the true and greater prophet. You are the king, the son of David, and you are our high priest. Lord Jesus, if it were not for your priestly ministry on our behalf, we would have no salvation. I pray that you would give us confidence to draw near this morning, that we would rest fully in your work on our behalf and never go back to the old ways of trying to do good enough and keep the law on our own. And I pray, Lord, that you'd give us confidence to come before you, that we would be encouraged this morning as we consider your ongoing ministry on our behalf, praying for us, advocating for us, pleading our cause. Lord Jesus, we worship you this morning. We pray that our hearts would burn with joy in all that you've done for us. Amen.